Welcome to the Scripts and Scribes podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Fukunaga. For more great interviews and resources on the craft and business of writing, be sure to check out our companion website, scriptsandscribes.com. But first, we welcome back to the show a lit manager and producer who started his career as an agent at Writers and Artists Agency, where he was head of the lit department before moving to Paradigm. After a dozen years in the agent business, he's transitioned to management and producing as a partner at Code Entertainment. Welcome back to the show. Welcome back to the podcast, I should say. Rich Freeman. Thanks for coming on again, Rich. I'm glad to be back, Kevin. It's been a while. Yeah, it's been a while. So I'm very glad that you agreed to come back on the show. Many things have many things have changed. Yeah, and there's and there's some exciting things afoot. But it's like you said, it's been a while. So uh, I do want to touch on the WGA ATA conflict of interest standoff, which we were off the air just chatting about briefly. But maybe because it's been a while and uh, some listeners, newer listeners may not have heard your initial podcast, which if you are interested in hearing, you can go back to our website, scriptsandscribes.com, and it is on there. But for those who haven't, uh, maybe tell us a little bit about your background and how you joined Code Entertainment as a partner. Sure. Sure. So I, uh, well, let's see, going back, it goes back a while now. <laughs> I, uh, I, uh, I, I graduated Emory university and was a history major. So that's going pretty far back. And when I graduated, I was interested in, in the movie business. I was always, always interested in, in movies. I, uh, I moved back to my hometown, Boston, and I started to freelance. I worked as a production assistant, uh, on various commercials and corporate videos and certain Hollywood films that come to town and independent films and corporate, uh, corporate videos, industrial films, et cetera. And, uh, did that for four years, was a grip electrician. I was a production coordinator. I did a lot of different jobs in production at that time, Mm -hmm. but, uh, it wasn't a career and I figured why not try LA? So I packed my bags in 1996, drove out West and, uh, and I started the temp. So this is, uh, so I did that for about six months and I saw an ad actually in the Hollywood Reporter and, uh, I applied for an assistant position at Writers and Artists Agency at the time, which is a, not, not in existence anymore, but right. it was a mid-sized agency at the time. Uh, and, uh, I met with the head of the, the company and I ended up working for two, uh, television literary agents and I did that for about a year and I identified a writer who I was interested in and uh, I went to my boss at the time and wanted to, uh, after a year, get a promotion, which was a little unusual. Uh, at that. It certainly doesn't happen like that today, but back in those days, there was a little more uh, opportunity for advancement than a quicker way. Uh, and I, uh, I identified this writer and uh, I, I took a script out to the town and, and well, lo and behold, my very first script I sold as a spec to Fox. And that's really what got my career up and going. Uh, and so I ended up moving out of television at that time. Mm-hmm. And in retrospect, maybe it wasn't the right thing to do. But you know, <laughs> uh, at the time, I was interested in movies. And I became a feature lit agent. And I did that from 1998 uh, until or late 97, until, um, until uh, 2004, where Writers and Artists Agency was acquired by Paradigm Agency. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I, along with a select number of agents, went to Paradigm at that time, and uh, uh, and I stayed there for four years. And at the end of 2008, I decided that I wanted to do something a little more entrepreneurial and wanted to focus my business on fewer clients. And I 
uh, wanted to at some point try my hand at some producing. So I left the agency business at that point in January 2009. I started at Code Entertainment, um, which was um, which my my partner Rick Berg uh, in the management side. We were agents together at Writers and Artists, so there was a familiar, familiarity already. And uh, in addition, um, the guys on the production side at Code, uh, who I knew at the time, I knew them for several years because they had actually financed one of my clients' movies. Oh. Uh, back in early 2000. So there was a comfortable familiarity all around, and it was a platform for me to move into a more of an entrepreneurial type of way to um, to uh, represent uh, writers and directors, but also to um, set my own schedule. Uh, I didn't want to do 10 meetings a week, which is what I was doing as an agent. I didn't want to cover studios anymore, which is something that, uh, all agents have to do where you're responsible. You're, you, you as a lead agent are responsible. If you're whether it's Sony or Warner Brothers, you're responsible for all the information that comes out of those studios of, of your area of coverage. And uh, I just uh, after 12 years, that was it, was it was enough for me. And so I decided I wanted to do something a little more entrepreneurial, and that's what um, that's what led me to code. Oh, cool. Um, and Every once in a while, we'll sort of get back to basics, and I know we've talked about it on other podcasts in the past, but none recently. And for, again, new listeners who might be joining the podcast uh, newer, you know, this is maybe their first episode, if they listened to a couple, could you explain to some of the newer writers out there who may not, who may be in the hunt for a manager or an agent, What's the difference between what you do and what an agent does? Okay. There, there's actually quite a bit of overlap, but the basic differences are this. Uh, agents uh, negotiate deals and procure work. That's what they're supposed to do. That's their job. That's sort of what they're licensed to do. Managers are not licensed. That's part of what this WGAT thing is, is all about, too, but we'll get to that later, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, Managers are, are, are more, even though we do also, I call studios and I call producers and I push my clients for various writing assignments or directing assignments. That absolutely is, is part of it. But it's much more of uh, managers promote clients. Uh, managers spend a lot more individual time with clients on individual projects, on passion projects, read multiple drafts, uh, uh, identify the opportunities in a way that uh, sometimes agents, and I, I was guilty of this too, you, you jam writers specifically, more writers than directors, into, into jobs because they're either high paying or because they're available, without, sometimes without thinking too much of whether it's good for the writer's career. Mm-hmm. The manager spends a lot of time trying to figure out with the client and, and and uh, and the agents, as I said, the agents are certainly part of this, no, no question, um, to figure out what the best move is. Do you take that job? Do you not take that job? So it's a lot, it's a lot more of a focused type of representation, whereas uh, the agency business is a lot more of, of, of a numbers game. You, you have to have, there's a lot of pressure on the agency business, a lot of overhead in the agency business that you requires you to have a, a lot of clients and, and a lot of commerce as a result. Not that I don't have pressure, you know, I have an overhead here and I get a salary, et cetera. 
it's just it's a little bit different in that um, uh, uh, there's not the same kind of pressure, uh, given the fact that I've been doing this for over 20 years now, and I have a, a certain number of, of uh, established you know, clients that uh, I can count on for revenue relative to what my overhead is, which is a, a fraction of what it was when I was an agent. So right. those are some of the differences between it, but the basics are agents procure work and negotiate deals. And while managers do some of that, um, managers have much less clients. They do much less meetings uh, during the, the week uh, in terms internally, that's is what I'm saying. Um, and, uh, and, and just there's a lot, it's a lot more focused type of representations. So whereas an agent might have 50 or 60 clients, most managers would have maybe 20 to 30. Some, some have more, but I, I would argue that the vast majority of managers have a lot less clients than agents. Right. So that, those are the basic differences. Right. And while we're sort of on the topic of agents, uh, it's a good segue to our WGA ATA conflict of interest chat. Uh, what's your take of the situation and, and where do you think it's going to lead? Yeah, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about that over the last couple months. And, right. And, uh, you know, it's a very hard question to answer uh, in a short way. But the, the basics are, unfortunately, I think this is going to go for a while. Uh, as I think I said before mm -hmm. we hopped on here, I mean, these things are not that hard to get into and can be very difficult to get out of. Uh, and I think both sides have their points. Um, but ultimately, uh, the, the, the agencies have relied on package fees for 40 or 50 years. It's very hard to unwind that in a couple of months, whereas the WGA, his point of view, and I understand it, is it's a conflict of interest. There's less incentive for the agencies to negotiate higher rates for writer clients. Now, I'm speaking specifically about television here, not features. It's different in features. Right. Um, but they feel like there's a conflict where the agents just only care about the package. And, you know, that can be for the listeners out there, they don't know what packaging fees are. It's they're, they're basically when you sell a show to a network, there's a, normally a studio involved. So, for example, ABC Studios for the ABC Network. Uh, a writer sells a show to ABC Network, and the ABC Studios is the studio. They finance the show, and as a result of getting that show, the agency charges a packaging fee, which is normally three percent of the license fee. Which the license fee is the sort of the network pays the studio per episode, and that can be you know significant. So. If it's sometimes it's a million dollars license fee, and sometimes it's a four million dollar license fee. So you can just do the math. So three percent of a million bucks, you know, is thirty grand per episode. So if you do that math, um, thirty thousand dollars per episode that an agency would get, um, in, in in a lot of ways can, you know, is is is, is the equivalent of, of a client earning three hundred thousand dollars. Right. Uh, you know what I mean? Because they normally get ten percent now. The thing that people don't understand about this is that it's not just the writer. Uh, so if an agency has a writer that sells a show to ABC and gets a package fee, 
that showrunner or that creator who hires writers may hire another four writers from that agency. There, will, there may be two or three actors from that agency also on that. That could be series writers. That could be a director that's the sh- that shoots the pilot from that same agency. So if you add up all the fees that they would get, sometimes that thirty thousand dollars, you know, isn't, you know, it sounds like a ton, but when they're not commissioning any of those clients because of the package fee, you know, it's it's not as much as you think. So, um, and that's their argument. I'm not taking their side. Sure. I just think that that's that's their argument. So, the big thing that the agencies get. Uh, is in success. Now it's a little bit different now. I'm, and I'm frankly, I'm not even that up on sort of what the agencies get when, you know, that when they get us, you know, when they sell a show to Netflix, for example, um, you know, they, not only do they get a package fee, I'm not sure what their back end is, but that's really what this is all about. You know, mm-hmm. the back end of these series is just huge for these agencies. You know, right. they get 10%. So on a syndication sale, so you take an example, I'm going to use an old example, take an example like Friends. Right. You know, Friends, you know, the agency that packaged that show got 10% of that sale, which my understanding was, was close to a billion dollars. Right. So when you do that math, that's really what these agencies are shooting for. These other packaging fees, which are lucrative, and I don't discount them at all, but everybody's going for the Big Bang Theory, mm-hmm. you know, for Modern Family those kinds of, you know, these CSIs, you know, when those shows hit and become successful like that and they sell into syndication, um, that's just a huge windfall. And that's why these agencies are not going to give that up, not entirely. So, um, so that's their position. The WGA's position is it's just a, it's a straight conflict of interest and it's illegal. It's like a kickback mm-hmm. from the studio to, uh, the agency and their position is absolute. They're they're at this point, the WGA is they'll, yeah, their, their position is packaging and affiliated companies, companies like Endeavor content. And I forget which, which one that, uh, uh, that CAA has, but Endeavor content is WME, um, is owned by WME. Uh, um, uh, they, they, they feel that, uh, clients uh, are working, you know, for for the agency in that point. So that's a conflict of interest. Um, so the, their position be, is it's just absolute. It's a conflict of interest and illegal. It ha- both packaging and affiliated companies must go. So you have the WGA staking out a position in the alphabet at A, and the agencies in the alphabet are sticking out staking out the the position of Z. And that's where these two groups are right now. There's just no middle ground. So, um, and I think what's going to happen is, my impression is, at least, uh, that the WGA is going to test the agencies in two stages. The first stage is is now, which is staffing season. Mm -hmm. Uh, Between now and the end of June, you know, you have the upfronts coming up in the next week or so, or two, whatever that is, where broadcast shows will get picked up. Uh, the WGA feels like, the, with all of their social networking and the tools that they have for writers, that staffing season won't be that different from years past when agencies were really involved in, in helping staff people on shows. 
I think if the WGA, if the membership doesn't revolt in the next month or six weeks, and because um, shows are going to get staffed sure, anyway, sure. anyway, it's license. It's just that that um, that staff writer, that story editor, that co-producer, that lower to the middle level writer on a TV show is who's most vulnerable right now because those are the ones that really rely on agents to do the real hard work of of grinding it out and uncovering these staffing opportunities. If those, if the rank and file can get through staffing season without going back to the leadership and saying, you got to make a deal. Uh, my guess is they're going to um, test the development waters, the WGA. In other words, you have the selling of shows in July, August, and September. And if they can make it through staffing season without a revolt, the, the WGA won't have much of an incentive, I don't think, to make any sort of a deal uh, until they um, go through a development cycle where the agencies – they test the agencies and see if they can withstand not having any package fees right. off of writers in over the next three or four months. Now that's a pretty that's not going to hurt them in the short term because what you pro, what you've seen over the last month or two, if you if you look at Deadline, if you're a writer or whoever in Hollywood, you've seen a lot of overall deals, you know. Mm-hmm. with all these big writers and, and a lot of others that were, have been made. All those deals that were made before this, the code of conduct expired um, are, 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 um, were made by agencies where those clients warrant packages. So any project that I'm making this up, you take Ryan Murphy as an example, mm-hmm. and I don't know what his deal was at all, but just as an example, if you make a deal for him right before the code of conduct expires, anything that he develops for Netflix over the course of that, whatever that term is, that three-year term, could be a five-year term, whatever it may be, uh, is uh, any project that he writes or develops as a production company is a package position for that agency. Sure. So in the short term, they're not affected. Um, in the long term, from a cash flow position basis, it, they could get very uh, much affected because um, if you look at the biggest agencies, and in this case, the ones that are getting sued, they all have very big staffs of literary agents, feature lit agents, and television lit agents. If if they're not making any deals, it's not that the cash flow in the next three to six months is at risk. It, it's the 12 months, 12 months out right. is what's at risk. And, and in addition to that, in the short term, these agencies still have to pay these agents and their overhead. So that, that's a lot of overhead when you take their salaries and assistant salaries and health insurance and just everything associated with having an office at an agency that can get very expensive for the agencies. So I think that's what they're trying to test with the agencies. And I think what the hope is of the WGA, and this will be the the last thing I'll say about it. um, uh, I think the hope for the WGA is that their divide and conquer strategy, I think is what they're going after. They're hoping that the midsize agencies, anybody other than the, the, the big four. Well, at some point to say, you know what, our agency doesn't wholly you know, rely on, it's not a gigantic part of our business, uh, we're going to sign the code. And I think that's, and, and it's sort of, that's the divide and conquer strategy that if they can get some of the ATA agencies to hop on board, then uh, they, they hope that the other agencies will follow suit. I don't know if that's going to work, but I, I think that's going to be what they're going to try to do. Right. 
And how has it affected your clients in business personally? You know, the only way it's really affected my clients personally is that all of them have sent the letter to their agents and and have followed suit with the WGA. So they're not having the support right now of agents in, in the procurement of work and the uncovering of opportunities. So what's changed a little bit is uh, I've had to get more involved, not that I wasn't doing that before, but more actively involved in, 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 in trying to uncover opportunities for, for some of these clients. And, uh, and also it's, uh, you know, for, for me, uh, I rely on agents in, in partnership with the clients that I work with for information and to not have, you know, they, the agencies get the information first and they disseminate that information to their partners that they're working with in this, in this case, managers. And collectively we promote and uncover work work and, and opportunities for our clients. Now that's made a little more difficult because they're not technically being representing the client anymore. So it's changed my day in that way. Other than, other than that fact, you know, I mean, I do have clients that don't have agents. Mm-hmm. So, um, and, and I'm doing a couple of deals for clients that don't have agents. So, um, so in that respect, you know, business goes on and I'll continue to do what I do until, you know, some, for some legal reason, I'm not supposed to do that. And, uh, as of now, not, nothing has come about where would cause me to change sort of what I'm, I've been doing as a manager over the last number of years. Right. And we know that the WGA for television staffing has their own sort of submission system. And on Twitter, they have like a multiple hashtags, like hashtag WGA yeah, staffing boost, yeah, and things, staffing boost yeah, things like that. Yeah. Is there anything like that that you've heard of for feature writers? And, and how does it, because obviously there's no staffing season for features, it just kind of is, and there's, you know, there's no development season. Developments go on all year for features. Yeah. Is there anything out there for feature writers specifically, or are your feature writers being affected differently than your TV writers, clients, at, you know, at Code? Um, you know, a, a little bit, but, but not a lot. Uh, and here's why. I, and again, you might get, a different answer from sure. any sort of any, from different managers and things of that nature. I think in the studio system, mostly in the studio system, that means Warner Brothers and Sony and Fox and Universal and Disney and DreamWorks, Paramount, etc. Those places and the system has gotten so black and white. You're either on their list, and in the future world, that that may be for a production rewrite or a book adaptation or whatever it may be. You're either on the list or you're not. And if you're not on the list, with few exceptions, and I've certainly had those exceptions in the last year, you know, where clients that weren't on a studio's list that ended up getting the gig, it was probably more because of the agent, my, my work and the agent's work of, of making sure they got that shot. Um, but short of, with those few exceptions, you're either on a studio's radar and and they're coming to you, or or you're not, and you're not going to get the job. And if you are, uh, they'll either have already have the relationship with that writer, and will reach out directly to the writer, whether by a phone call, by an email, or there's a manager to talk to, or the producer has the relationship, 
with the writer and they will reach out directly. So I don't think, you know, like a guy like JJ Abrams or a Scott Frank or uh, whoever hot writer is out there. Mm-hmm. They're not hard to find for a studio. Right. Uh, you know, so I think from that perspective, there's, I don't think there's anything like a staffing boost for feature writers. I, I don't think there's the same kind of urgency that's needed just because the, the way the two sort of sides of that bit of the business work, the feature business is just very, very exclusive right now. And in TV, it's just such a boom. And there's so many positions on these sh- different shows. Uh, there's just so many more writers in television that are employed than there are in features right now. Right. Uh, just, be- just because, just by virtue of the fact that you have to staff these shows. It's not, you know, when you have a writer write a feature, it's one writer. They write, they write the movie. Now, obviously, they bring in rewrites, you know, a lot on these movies. Right. But, you know, in... When you're staffing a television show, the showrunner, depending on how much the show is going to cost and what network, you know, there could be as little as three or four people on staff in addition to the creator. There could be, you know, 10 people right. on staff. So there's just a lot more uh, opportunity there, and, and which is why the, the WGA, that staffing boost is a good thing. I, I, I've, I've seen it myself on, online where writers of TV shows are, are – uh, volunteering to read scripts of, of, of writers that they get recommended by other people on Twitter, et cetera, et cetera. I, I haven't seen it in practice yet, so I don't know if it's actually been beneficial to the showrunners and, or if they're just going to do what they normally do, which is if you're running a show in television, you generally, uh, as a creator, uh, have relationships with writers that you've, you've worked with in the past. Uh, and those are the people that you go to first. And if they're not available then you go to the studio uh, or the network and say, hey, I need a co-producer, producer level. Who do you like? And you get a list of names, and sometimes that, that showrunner will go, oh, yeah, I've worked with that person. I'll reach out. Or the studio reaches out directly. So they're going to get to these people. Right. Um, and shows will get staffed. It's, I, I think there's systems in place for TV writers is, is probably um, – better, but I'm not even sure if it's better than for feature writers. I just think the two, the businesses are just so different. Um, feature writers, uh, if you're employable, they're going to find you. That's just, the, that's, that's what it is. And mm-hmm. if you're not on those the studio radars right now, um, when I say studio radar, you either have worked an assignment, you know, in the last 12 months, or you had a movie that came out or you sold a script. Um, and you have to be current. If you haven't worked in a year or two, you're not, you're not going to get a studio assignment right now. It's just that it's that simple. Right. And actually, you brought up a, a great topic and something that uh, we haven't covered in a long time. And it's something that I think new writers may have questions about. Uh, this uh, studio lists, uh, what are they for? And how does a writer get on one of these lists? Yeah, the studio lists are generated by the studio executives. And how do you get on that list? You've sold the script, you know, a script sells or that gets on the blacklist as an example. And if, you know, that's where the blacklist has been really beneficial, I think, for, for writers. Um, but first up, we're talking know, about it, the actual industry blacklist, not necessarily yeah, the website, correct? That's correct. Yeah. And then the website, 
is something completely different. Anybody right. can, I think you spend a certain amount of money, I don't know what it is, and you can register your script and it gets reviewed and all. And that's a good tool, don't get sure. me wrong. Yeah. Um, the blockers I'm talking about is that list of 100 unproduced screenplays that gets generated now yearly you know, that executives look at. And a lot of these, if I mean, I I'm not a production company executive, I'm not a studio executive, but if I were, I would be reading all of those scripts and, and you know, because it's become industry standard. I mean, it's, it's proven to be very successful for these writers to, if you get on these lists, you, you've, it's, it's something that studios do pay attention to. Um, so, um, so you're either, you've written a script that's gotten a lot of attention from executives and it makes the blacklist uh, you sold a script, uh, you had a movie get made, uh, and, and, you know, studio executives take notice of that. If you're an upper level studio executive, my argument would be, they're not, they don't want to be educated. It's just that simple. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the notion now that that didn't always used to be the case. When I first became an agent, I used to call high level executives all the time. They were always interested in knowing new writers and reading and taking meetings. They don't do that anymore. You know, they, that's why that's where you have the juniors. You have the creative executives, the director of developments, whatever it is. Those are the ones that read. And if they're, you know, if those people read and they say, "Hey, this is great," then they get the senior to read. So, how do you get a senior executive's attention? You've either sold a script, or something has gotten made, or you hit the blacklist. Right. You know, or you know, you had a relationship with a big actor or a big director, and that director or actor says, "I want this person writing this script." So. There's, there's really not a lot of magic to it. The easiest way is to write a script that a studio thinks is a big movie and buys it and goes, goes and makes it. If that happens, you're on their list. Mm-hmm. It's a, it, that's as simple as I can tell you. You right. write a movie that comes out through one of the big studios that makes a lot of money, you're on everybody's list. Um, if, if you're a, a writer that's just writing... You know, if you write three, three writing assignments because you got on somebody on, on a list through the blacklist and nothing got made, it's going to be hard for you to maintain, you know, working at the studio level. So that's the, I think that's the basic of it. There's obviously independent films that there's some money coming in now on the independent side. You know, they don't spend near as much money, obviously, on development, but they might pay $100,000 for a writer that normally gets paid four or 500, let's say. It hasn't worked in a couple of years, but they like that writer and they feel like they're getting a bargain instead of paying four or 500, they pay them a hundred, 150. Right. So that does happen. But the studio system is an exclusive area right now. You've either sold something, something got made, something hit the blacklist, something that got people's attention. You know, the notion that you can just write one or two scripts, take it out. If it doesn't sell that you're going to get your career up and going at this point, mm-hmm. it used to be that way. It's not that today. In my, this is just in my my experience. Some some other managers might might say something different. Sure. Uh, what is the appeal of new clients to someone such as yourself who has an established client roster? In other words, yeah. why, why would you consider a new writer? Because all managers and all agents, everyone's looking for the great new talent, even ones who have an established client list. But what is that? What is the appeal there? Well, the the appeal definitely is uh, it, it's a changing and dynamic marketplace. Uh, you have to be able to adapt to that. Uh, yes, I have a lot of clients that are established and have write, been writing regularly in film and television for the last many many years. But there is this. Uh, I, I am interested in finding sort of the new 
writer, but it, it's, it's different for me now than it was 20, 25 years ago. What, what I don't really do is respond to queries. I look at them. I know I'm going to get them. I, I mean, I got them a, a lot uh, based on the podcast that I did in a few years ago with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, it's rare that I, in this day and age, that I'm, I take a lot of shots. I, my recommendation to young writers or newer writers that haven't cracked the system is, you know, you do, do your homework. The, the ones that, um, that have, have been working as a manager for, you know, five years or less are going to be more apt to want to take shots on writers and really grind it out. I did that. Mm-hmm. I, I grinded out for years as a young agent and read a ton of query letters, and that's how I found a few of my first clients. But it's a tremendous amount of work. I, I just, it's not a good use of my time anymore. So the younger writers that I, I work with generally come from a lawyer, come from a production company, come from other clients, actually. I've gotten the last two clients I've signed have come from a client mm. recommendation. Right. Yeah, you know, from other writers. I mean, that's what I, I, that would be my argument, man. Man. Yeah, yeah. These clients are, are great. When you work with these guys, they have other writer friends that sometimes are underserved or need the additional help. They have an agent; they want more help. I mean, that's how I found some of these younger clients uh, is through through the existing clients. But it's not really for me. From query letters, from blind phone calls, I get those a lot still. Uh, yeah, that's not really for me right now. How I'm gonna get the clients that I, I'm very interested in, in that young writer though, who either can do one of two things. Uh, and this is pretty constant. I would say, I probably said this the last time I was on, mm-hmm. you're either writing a big commercial movie that you can do well, that a studio is going to want to buy, or you're writing something so extraordinary and so good, so character driven that it's undeniable that a big director or actor will see as something that they have to, go and do and that's a smaller movie and an oscar winner type of a script those are the two kinds of clients i'll be interested in now now obviously that same goes for television you write a television pilot that is a commercial pilot a, a whether i don't you can pick a subject matter but something that has scope something that is not too dark something that either you know a, a cbs or an nbc might want to program or if it's more of a serialized type of show, uh, something that an Amazon or Netflix would, would be interested in. Uh, you know, I'm probably not as interested in that Sundance type of show, type of series. Those are just two or period pieces. doesn't mean I don't read them. There's certain things that I read that are period pieces that I enjoy just because I like history, but they're very difficult sells. So, uh, so it's just, and if that's not me, I, I again, for me, I, I used to love doing that in the late nineties was breaking writers, with, with great smaller pieces that just, it just isn't the willingness on the, on the buyer side to, to really embrace that as much anymore. There's always going to be those exceptions and there'll always be, you know, that pilot that whether through the good work of an agency or a manager that has a relationship with a director that gets something going. And all of a sudden you have somebody that has never done anything before. And all of a sudden now, you know, Steven Spielberg is the producer of the pilot and CBS buys it and Halle Berry stars in it. And you have a career now that's like, that gets going, which is exactly what happened to that guy, Mickey Fisher, right. as an example. Right. And that was done through the great work of a manager named Brooklyn Weaver. Great, mm-hmm. you know, great, great guy, great manager. Totally, you know, worked with, with the client and developed it. And, and uh, they sold it. And, and the guy had not, not done anything before that. And now he's done really, really well. Right. No, he's done so, great. So, yeah. So, uh, 
yeah, it's uh, it's it's a matter of time for me now. After you know, I'm, I'm pushing 25 years in this business, so I just, I want to be <laughs> careful of <laughs> of uh, of my time these days. And so uh, so I, I I'm going to work on referral. That's from clients, man, from other uh, from agents, from lawyers, from producers, studio executives. Uh, those are where I get my new clients now. Right. And speaking of referrals, you had mentioned, again, uh, cl clients referring other writers to you, execs, producers, whoever, agents. But w how far does that go down? Meaning if uh, a college screenwriting professor or another writer, like a working writer, but one that you don't necessarily have a relationship with or, you know, they're not your client – does that move the needle at all, or does it literally have they, this person has to have a connection to you that is doing the referring? It's more that the person has to have a connection with me, and I, I hate to be cynical about it. Sure, I just sometimes when because I've gotten exactly what you just said. Yeah, you know, that that writer, or that that write that the right there's two things. Either a writer that is a working writer, and, and, and when I say working writer, I don't mean it's a top A-list writer. Some writer that's working will say, "Hey, my friend." Uh, wrote the scripts, you think he, it, but it's more the reverse. It's more of a writer will say, so-and-so writer suggested I contact you. Well, uh, I don't know that person. <laughs> yeah, right. you know, it's like, I, you know, or, so, or even some so-and-so producer or this attorney, I'm represented here as an, by an attorney, and they suggested I reach out to you. Well, I don't know that attorney. Why isn't the attorney making that call? Right. So I, I just know, you know, listen, I get it. It's, you know, anything to try to get sort of a, a, a script read um, it generally, for me, doesn't move the needle. Mm -hmm. It has to be from somebody that I know, and preferably somebody that calls me and says, hey, you should take a look at this person, and I know that the person making the referral. But also, and more importantly, that they've read it. They don't just get it to me and say, hey, take a look at this. Right. Because that's always the first question that I ask. Have you read it? Mm -hmm. And that's very telling to me. If they've read it and they said, yeah, I like it a lot, that's going to move the needle for me a lot more than if they say, now I haven't taken a look at it. Well, I, now you, I just know you're doing that right, or, or somebody, somebody, you're doing somebody a favor. Right. It's what it is. What it is. And so after doing this for as long as I've been doing it, it there's, there's not a lot that gets by me anymore. There's some, but not, but not so much anymore. So, uh, and again, it's more for my, uh, the for my time in the day for me, where I, I just don't want to waste a writer's time and don't want to waste my own time at this stage of the, of the game for me. Right. No, I get it. Um, when seeking out a manager, how important is it to consider, you know, for a writer to consider what types of clients this uh, manager has? In other words, if if someone is a sci-fi TV writer looking for uh, a manager who reps those types of clients, or can that sort of end up too limiting considering that rep might have like a stack of these top clients and that genre and medium, and maybe they're looking to fill a hole in their client list somewhere like with a writer who does something different? Or does it really matter as long as that writer is brilliant on the page? I think it's a really good question. I, I, and I think you'll get a different answer from, uh, from, any, from any kind of manager or different manager you would, you would ask. Sure. Some managers are better in, in, at this, um, and they, they can work in, in all different areas and genres, uh, you know, comedy, drama, sci-fi, action, family, whatever it may be. Um, uh, for me, I, I think you have to. You're right. You do have to do a little homework. If you look at my list of clients, if you're a writer, if you if you really dig into it, I don't work with a lot of comedy people. It's mm -hmm. just not what I'm doing right now. 
doesn't mean I won't take on somebody in comedy. I absolutely would. It's just not something that I've been more focused on. Right. I've been focused more on features and, and more one hour drama writers and less so. So when I get a comedy script from somebody or somebody sends me a query, I wrote this half hour sample. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I know that, you know, look, and I get it. The writers are looking for a representation. I don't. I barely even look at those kinds of queries. Mm-hmm. I only look at, at comedy really if it's from a strong referral, and 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 that goes for features as well. Uh, also, I, you know, for myself, I, I've really made a point to uh, generate relationships in that one-hour space. That's what I'm interested in. I'm talking television now. In sure. movies, it's a little bit different. If you write a good feature script, it can be a comedy. You know, I I certainly I I come out of the movie business for the last you know over 20 years now. Uh, if I read a comedy from the feature side that I think is great, uh, I know who to call. I can get the script out to the you know people that are appropriate. Um, and on the half-hour comedy side, it's not as much of a business for me, at least, that I've trafficked in too much over the last 10 years. So I probably am not the best person for half-hour comedy spec uh, if you're looking for representation. Uh, I'm much more involved in, in the one-hour business. That said, as I said before, uh, you know, the, the, the email query uh, or just the, the, the typewritten query that I get in the mail is more often than not, it's probably not going to get me to, to want to request a script. Occasionally, and very occasionally, there are times where I, because I do read most of the queries, there are queries that you know, there's a subject matter that I'm interested in. Like, for example, I just, you know, I haven't read the script yet, but I, uh, uh, I got a query about the uh, about the the peace treaty between the Bloods and the Crips in the early 90s hmm. as a as a as a feature script, and I found that I think that's interesting. Now I have no idea how good it is or whether that's a saleable project, but regardless, I was interested in the subject matter, so right. I requested that script. Mm-hmm. That's probably the that's I, I I can point that out to you because that's really the only one that I can remember in the longest time requesting. Right. So just as just as an example, so it's not impossible. And if I if I absolutely love it, I will call that writer and say, "Hey, I really I read your script. I love this, and uh, and I I want to meet you." But that was that's for me. If it's a if it's a subject matter I'm interested in, that's what's going to get my attention. Now who knows what that's going to be? You know, in this case, I think that's interesting. I mean, I was I was in my early 20s when that whole peace treaty thing went down. You know, and I remember the whole you know Rodney King of it all and and things of that nature and. Uh, and I think it'd be fascinating to read something about the the, the backstory of how that peace treaty came together between the, the gangs. Right. It's and, a, just as an example. Right. No, it's great. And and speaking of of like a logline that caught your attention, other than that, like finding that that subject matter or that story idea that piques your interest, which obviously an outside writer wouldn't necessarily know. Other than that which if they've written their script, it's sort of, they have that anyway. So it's either going to, you know, hit or not uh, based on your interest level. But what else stands out in a query? What do you like to see or not see in a query? Like, is there anything like, even if the logline was great, that would make you hit delete before you even get to that logline in a query or something that, that may move the needle a little bit if you're sort of on the fence? Yeah. I, I think the queries that move the needle, uh, and I, I say by saying the needle, meaning that it doesn't get deleted immediately. Right. Uh, are, are the log lines that that communicate a potential commercial idea? Um, 
that whether it's I've wrote the script and it's uh, this is what the basic is. I mean, I, for me, a log line that can describe a commercial movie really it's I hate to be cliche about this, but if you go back to like you know how the, sort of what the 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 quintessential log line is and and what is that? It's the Die Hard movie. That's what, that's what people point back to. Mm-hmm. You can describe that movie in in one sentence. That's a hard thing to do, you know. But you know, New York cop gets you know isn't that what, New York cop gets caught up in in L.A. high rise and has some ballast tires to save his wife and family. You know, I mm-hmm. mean, it's a it's a pretty easy uh, concept to understand in one or two lines. Right. That's what I would look for in a query letter. Something that if you have to write a whole paragraph, and I get this all the time a whole litany of, of this detail of what your movie's about, I know I'm not interested. Right. Well, I, and, you know, and, because, and, yeah. and die, I just want to throw in, and Die Hard is such sort of an easy film to use as an example in that I remember for a time, everyone was saying, like, Speed 2, it's Die Hard on a boat. So not only right. is it being used, it doesn't have a great sort of easy log line because of the concept but people were using it as an example you know using it in their own log line you know it's die hard oh, yeah. on a boat die hard on a plane yeah, you know yeah. die hard on a plane die yeah. on, you know, on a ship and you know exactly what I you're mean, getting just from right. that yeah i mean the same thing you know with speed speed on a you know you could use the same example right. with speed yeah you know you could do the same example with titanic now right. titanic set in space right you know, i mean it's a you know, so there are those. Now, obviously, we're talking about very big movies, and it's sure. and I acknowledge, by the way, that this is a lot easier said than done. I, I, I'm not saying it's easy at all, mm-hmm. but uh, but there's so much uh, so much material that right managers and agents have to get through. You do have to figure out a way, and there's no great answer to it to to stand out. How do you stand out? Ultimately, it's going to be: Are you a good writer? But it's not just that these days. You have to be a good salesperson. You have to be able to go into a room as a young writer and convince somebody that you should get hired and, and that your take is the best take and that you've got command in a room. That's not an easy skill to have. It's not just the fact that you can write something good on, on the page. There's the other half is convincing somebody that, you know, that you should get hired and that you should convince you know, that, that a studio is willing to put six figures into your, into your um, lap or, or into your bank account based on a 15 or 20 minute pitch on whether it's a rewrite or a book adaptation or whatever it may be. So it's not just being a good writer on the page. The other, there is that other side to being the, the personal salesman. You shouldn't have to be able to do that to get work, but in this day and age you do. Right. Uh, and how many scripts would you say you read on average in any given week, both in terms of your clients, outside projects? And this is obviously in addition to all the phone calls and meetings and lunches and everything else you have to do. But just on average, how many scripts would you say you read in any given week on average? I mean, so- sometimes I, I, it's certainly not the volume that it was 15 years ago for me. Sure. Uh, but uh, sometimes it's as little as two, and sometimes as much as six or seven. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't really pen scripts a week anymore, and haven't done that for a long time. It just depends what I'm reading, whether it's a draft that's come in. I, I read multiple drafts of clients' work. You know, I mean, do you count that? I, you know, so if somebody yeah. writes a right, so you write a pilot script, and it's a one hour, and I read that and give notes, and then they rewrite it and they ask me to read it again, and I, I don't just read the changes. I, I want to see how it looks 
in you know, overall. So I read that script a second time. So the, so that may not be that week, but let's say it's the following week. I would still argue I'm still reading a script now. And some of it now is it used to only be feature scripts. Now I'm half of the scripts I read now are television scripts. Mm-hmm. So that's easier for me to get through, obviously, some of that stuff. And I've also admittedly gotten a lot better after doing this for so long. I rarely now, particularly when it comes to queries, um, will get beyond if I know after. 20 pages, this is just not something I'm interested in or I'm not going to sell it. Mm-hmm. Even if I like it, I stop. Right. Just, there's just too much, too many scripts. Now, you may say, well, you didn't really read that script. And you can make that argument. But for me, I now know enough about the marketplace and what I think I can sell mm-hmm. uh, and what I'm interested in that uh, really after 20 or 30 pages, I, I know I don't need to read anymore. If it's a period piece, if it's a small-town drama, if it's just something I don't think is very good, right. um, something I don't connect with, uh, I, what's, what's the point of reading 120 pages when you can go on to the next script after 20 or 30 when you know you're not going to be interested? In? So it sort of skews the number of scripts in that sense. So I, I can get through as many as seven scripts in, in a week if I do it the way I just described to you. Sure. Um, and you would also mention that in addition to being good on the page – it's incredibly beneficial and in some cases necessary to be good in a room as well. Uh, what, when you meet a client, when you've read their material and found it to the standard that you are looking for and uh, they have a, something that you find uh, sellable, an actionable piece of material, so to speak, when you meet with a potential client, what are you looking for? What are some, some turnoffs? What are some things that make a person, a potential client stand out? Yeah. Um, good question. Uh, the, the few things that, that stand out when I meet somebody, you can tell right off the bat whether somebody is going to be able to have presence in a room, mm-hmm. have command of a room, be able to articulate a vision of a script just by not even having to talk about the material, uh, but just, just the, asking them a few questions about their background how they see themselves in the business, what their goals are in the business. I, I pay attention very carefully to what is said and uh, an understanding of the business, a willingness to learn, to listen. These are all important factors uh, in terms of a client that I'm looking for. The ones that come in and say, hey, you know, I wrote this and I want to direct it, you know, or and they've never done anything in the business before, mm-hmm. or, you know, hey, I – you know, um, I've got a sci-fi script and a, a comedy script and a drama script, and I'm a jack-of-all-trades type of a person. I'm less interested in, in that. Sure. Uh, you know, but and it, it's really somebody that I feel like is going to be a good partner with me, someone that I'm going to have a rapport with. Look, there, there are times where I've been interested in, in, in potential clients, mostly because I know they'll be commerce, but we just didn't connect. Right you know, in the room. And I think that's the most important thing the, the most of the clients that I've worked with and have signed over the years is because we saw, you know, the client and I saw their, their career the same way and, and, and connected in a way that, uh, that, uh, the, the client felt that, that I would be the person best to push their career. You know, there may be, you know, look, I'm at a boutique company. There's only, you know, there's only seven people at the, this company and I'm competing against, other management companies that have, you know, 50 people in their company. So I'm not going to win the numbers game. If, if you're a young, impressionable writer, director, 
and a big management company is coming after you, um, you know, I'm not going to win that jump ball a lot of the times. The jump mm-hmm. balls that I win are the ones where I get in the room and the client has wants something specific in their career and just sees that I'm the guy that can get them there. And they're going to trust the fact that when I say I'm going to do something and follow through on something, sometimes the, you know, my competition doesn't, isn't as good at that. Um, and because I've purposely kept my client list to a certain number, I have the bandwidth. I, I, I've been lucky enough over the last number of years to have a, a, a focused business of clients that are, have done well. And, and I, I have the flexibility to keep my list small. So when I meet somebody that I really like and take them on, I'm going to give them all the the attention and, and care that they need. And, and I'm going to bet that they're going to be working within six months of me taking them on. That's the goal. If I, I don't think I can achieve that after meeting somebody, I'm probably not the right guy. Hmm. Um, and speaking and, of yeah. you, you had mentioned larger, bigger companies uh, and you being sort of, I don't, I wouldn't say small, sort of a mid-sized company because in management companies, you know, smaller companies can be a solo person, can be a two person right. thing. Um, what would you say are sort of the advantages and or disadvantages of one or the other? In other words, you know, a, a newer writer approaching and potentially signing with a big company versus a smaller company. Um, and in addition uh, to the sort of advantages and disadvantages of that, what sh- at what point is a, a manager or a company too small? In other words, when is it not when does a manager become an actual asset? Because there are those managers out there who, you know, because what does it take to become a manager? I'm a manager. Now I'm a manager, technically, right? It doesn't mean right. that you have any clout in the industry. It doesn't mean you have the contacts. It doesn't mean you have the experience. But almost anybody can say they're a manager. So how does a, I guess this is a two-part question, how does a writer know when a manager is actually somebody that can you know, champion their career, that they can grow together and, and build a career. Um, but again, the first part of the question was, what are the pros and cons, the advantages and disadvantages of a larger company versus a smaller mid-sized company? Yeah, I, I think the advantages of a larger company, if they're going to do it, and I would argue that the bigger management companies um, don't do this, but, you know, it, it, I'd be curious to, to hear some of the clients' answers of the ones that are there. I think, you know, the, the, the bigger management companies have, you know, a lot of actors at certain companies and a lot of directors at companies. And, uh, and the idea would be to connect those clients, much like the agencies, when they sign somebody. They say versus the, the bigger places versus the mid-sized places. They'll say, if you come with us, well, you'll meet that director and that actor. Well, that's an easy thing to say. You know, it's another thing to actually go make it happen once you get the person through the door. Now, when I was an agent, and we used to, because you know, we were going, I was at mid-sized agencies, you know, you know and so when we're going up against the behemoths, it, it, was, it was hard. So you would have to say almost anything to get them through the door, even if you really didn't believe in your mind that you could deliver on something and you would worry about it after they were through the door. And that was sort of the, the, the way, uh, you know, some of the, and to this day, I think agents do that. You know, they, they're not really, if you say to an actress as an example or an actor, Hey, you should be the Brad Pitt of this agency. You should be the Jennifer Lawrence. And if you come here, you're going to get those scripts before Jennifer Lawrence. So you're going to get, you know, the, that script before 
this person or that person. We're going to prioritize you. You know, if you're an actor, I mean, you're going to be like, wow, you know, this, that, that, I, that's what I want to hear, you know. And, and the same thing in the management side. If you're a, a manager uh, at one of the big places and you say, hey, um, my, my, my management company has this person and that person, you come here, you're going to be associated with that person or you're going to be, we're going to get that script to that person, that kind of thing. That's very enticing for that young writer or director or just a, a writer or director in general. Uh, and, and that's going to win the day a lot. Now, once you get signed by that place, let's see if they actually follow through when you write that pilot or you write that feature that they're actually going to do that. I, I would argue way more often than not, they won't do that. And just because that's just not how, you know, they can't make their high end clients take on something that they don't want to take on. I mean, so, but to, to be able to say that you have those clients and, there's a, at least easy access to get an answer. It's probably going to be no most of the time at the big management company, even at the big agency. Um, so if that's what you want and you want uh, that potential, then by all means, uh, I, I would argue to you that re regardless of where you're at, it's going to come down to the individual manager that has signed you. Do they have, uh, are they organized? Do they follow through? Do they how, look at their list of, of clients? Have they had some successes on that list? Um, or do they have anybody that's had a movie come out? Do they have anybody that you know, has a TV series on the air? Uh, do some homework. You know, what, what's the, the manager? What's the person you're signing? What's their background? Did they, were they agents before? How long have they been doing it? I, those, are all, those are all factors. Where are they from? You know, I'm from the Northeast. I'm going to connect with certain people, you know, and sometimes because I'm from the Northeast, I won't connect with certain people. So uh, there are a number of factors, I think, for a writer to consider. But at the end of the day, the most important thing is to have a connection with that manager. And that can be a one-person shop, and that can be a place of 50. And as long as they've got the access and the connections to get their calls returned, you're best off with somebody that you trust, that you can have a partnership with, that you have a rapport with, and that you think is going to is going to do the job, uh, you know. I, do I, I think signing with somebody, a, a young manager, as an example, and some of these guys are real hustlers. They're real, some of them really good at it, but at a bigger shop, but they don't really have a lot of the the um, access or the connections. But you sign there because of the company as a whole. Uh, maybe that's not the right move for a writer. You, you're best to, you're best served by a place that is going to be pushing you that sees your career the way you see it. That's going to, um, you know, follow through is a big thing and that I've seen. And I've seen it, I've seen it with the agencies and I've seen it with management companies. There's a lot that don't follow through. And you know, you, that, that I think is for a writer or director or an actor to, you know, take you know, Sometimes you're, you're guessing, I suppose, but that really to me is, is the most important thing uh, for, any writer, director, or actor is to be with somebody that you trust, somebody that will fall through, somebody that's been doing it for a while, and, and somebody that you know, doesn't have 100 clients that they have to service. So don't, don't just pick a company because they've got all the bells and whistles, even though there are certain – look, if you're a high-end director that doesn't need a lot of help, but you want you – know, you have to organize things or – you're, you're a major A-list person that you, you've got other projects that you want that the agency doesn't want to handle. I get it. You go to 
you know, a big management shop and, and that makes sense. But if you're an emerging writer, go where you feel like you're going to be best served. That could be the one person shop. It could be a shop of 50. When you're meeting with reps, there's often, you know, sales pitches in terms of this is where I'd like to take your career. This is where I see your career progressing. This is what I'd like to do. These are the people I'd like to send it to. How do you know as a, as a newer writer that this manager can actually deliver on some of that? Are there any signs or? I, I, I think when you meet, you ask who the, you know, the clients, who the other clients are of the mm-hmm. manager. Um, what's your, your background? How long have you been doing it? You know, uh, 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 did you work as an agent at some point? Uh, who, who were your, who did you work for to get, where, tell us, tell me your journey of how you got to where you got and you explain the way I did, mm-hmm. you know, I, was an assistant to two television agents and I sold my first spec and became a movie agent. And that's how I got my career going. But, you know, I, I worked for two TV people and, and, uh, and, and, and there you go. Um, and so if a manager says, Hey, you know, I worked at this production company for three years and I decided I was going to strike out on my own. You know, maybe that's not the right person. You know, maybe they don't, maybe they don't have as much access as somebody that has been, you know, was an, an agent for 10 years, you know, and then became a manager. Right. Uh, so, but again, I still come back to, you know, if, if you, there, you can get information, that's, that's what I'm sure of. If you're meeting with somebody that wants to sign you, now sometimes writers are just going to say, well, shit, I, I need to just get representation one way or the other. And if this person is interested in me and they have any bit of connection, that's more than I had yesterday. Sure. And if that if that person gets you out there and you sell something you want to move on, I mean, you know, maybe that's what a, a writer would decide. So um, that it just depends on the circumstances. And, and the circumstance that I think you're talking about, if somebody's got a little bit something going on and they're meeting multiple managers, I, I think it's more what I've just spoken to. But a lot of times, some somebody from some random manager that no one's ever heard of will reach out and say, "I'm a manager," and you know, I can take your career and do this or that. If a writer has no other alternative, uh, if you do a little, little bit of checking and they have some contacts, I guess what's the harm in, in, in going with that person? I, I, I honestly haven't really encountered a lot of that just because I'm so far removed sure. from, 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 that, from, from that level these days because I've been doing this for so long. Right. We have to have you back on again, Rich, we, and we can't take as long as we did last time because this has been great. Um, but do you have any last thoughts or advice for aspiring up-and-coming screenwriters? Yeah, it, it's probably what I said last time, and I say this all the time. Mm-hmm. And I say it on panels that I speak on and <clears throat> all that sort of thing. You know, you, you keep attuned to what the marketplace is doing. If you're a writer, two things. You write the notion that you can write one or two scripts or feature script or pilot script, and then your job is done and that, you know, Hey, you, you expect the representative is going to sell it. That just doesn't work in this marketplace you know, anymore. You have to constantly be generating. You've got to, you, you have to educate yourself on the business. But if it comes to movies, you've got it. You should be looking at all the movies that are, are making money. You should be watching all the Oscar movies. You have to really immerse yourself in this business at the outset when you're starting out. And that goes for any, that could be a writer, that could be a director, that could be a production company executive, it could be an agent or manager. You really have to educate yourself. 
and read, read, read about this business and learn how it all works. And, uh, cause that's going to help you on, you know, with, with representation as well. You, you sh- the more you show that you understand how the, how it works and that you're going to be an asset as well to your agent or manager as, as the manager feels like the writer is going to be an asset to them. If they sign you, it's, it's a two way street. It's not just, you write two things and you go out and sell. You have to keep writing. You have to be educated, show that you're, you're, you have a good understanding of what it means to be a writer for film or television today. And, and that means educating yourself and, and writing. That's what writers do. Don't sit back at the computer and call yourself a professional writer and then not write something for a year. You know, those are the ones that aren't going to succeed as much as the ones that are writing three or four things in a year. So, you know, that's, that's the main thing. Just keep writing. There's no other way I can say it. Keep writing. Good advice. Be sure to follow Rich Freeman at Rich, is it 9869 on Twitter? It is. And you can check out CodeEntertainment.com if you so desire. Uh, Rich Freeman, thank you so much. It's been incredible. All right, Kevin. It's always good to talk to you. Uh, and, of course, you can follow, find us on Twitter, at Scribes. There's no and in the middle there, just at Scribes, And on Facebook, that's back, Facebook.com backslash Scripts and Scribes. Thank you all for listening. <laughs>